Just a few days ago, a gang in Haiti's capital opened fire on Haitians that were protesting against gang violence, killing seven people. You should take note of what I did not say. I didn't say that Haiti's government killed protesters. And I didn't say that Haitians were protesting against Haiti's government. Because this episode is about Haiti's gangs. Gangs that are ravaging Haiti. Gangs that are ripping the fabric of Haitian civil society to pieces. At least least in my lifetime, I think it's the most devastating crisis that Haiti uh, has confronted. And Haiti has confronted many crises. That in 1994, when uh, President Aristide came back to the country, he abolished the army. And there was an attempt to create an effective police. And the police has never been effective. Now it's completely disintegrating. There is no institution now in Haiti. Yeah. It's not a single elected official. Parliament doesn't exist. Uh, the Senate doesn't exist. The judicial system has, for all practical purposes, completely collapsed. There is no electoral council. Uh, so there is no standing institution. And to, to put it bluntly, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, went to Haiti, and there were three candidates, and she essentially picked one, and that was uh, Martelly, which was really a very peculiar choice, because the guy was had no capacity to be a real president. He was a very popular singer, he had a band, he's very well known in Haiti for his music, but politically, he had no business becoming president. And suddenly, and this is really amazing when you think about it, there was a tweet, I'm talking a tweet, by the representative of the UN saying that uh, Ariel Henry should become the legitimate prime minister of Haiti. A simple tweet? It's a tweet. On Twitter. Unleash the whole thing. There was no other organization that could ratify (laughs) Ariel Henry. Ariel Henry was put there by the international community and Claude Joseph had to exit. Did you know that over the last decades, the international community has refused to channel assistance to Haiti through its government? Why? Because Haiti's government is notoriously corrupt. So, instead, international aid went to NGOs, non-governmental organizations, which in turn proliferated and grew powerful in Haiti. And as this happened... Haiti's government retrenched, and as the government shrunk, where do you think the corrupt government employees went to work? The NGOs. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is September 1st, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee 
or your favorite drink, or both. And let's get into it. In this episode, I will be uncovering the history behind a country that has not, has not been front page news in America, at least for a while now. But it should be, because Haiti is a country near total collapse, a country in a state of humanitarian catastrophe, a country close to our own, a country we have invaded and later frequently intervened in its domestic affairs, and a country whose despairing refugees we have deported desperate refugees who trek to our border all the way from Brazil and Chile. You have to pardon me here, I actually made a mistake. You see, news about Haiti did in fact recently make it to our prime time and front page news. But that news was about an American nurse and her child who were abducted in Haiti and later released. While that news development was important and worthy of coverage, it wasn't and is not the only important news from Haiti. Far from it. According to the Center for Analysis and Research in Human Rights, a Haitian organization that tracks kidnappings, Haiti has experienced 539 kidnappings since January, more than 50 of which were foreigners. The U.S. Embassy now in Haiti is barely open, functioning with only a remaining skeleton staff. In the opening days of August, the country of Kenya said it was considering the deployment of some 1,000 police officers to Haiti to help restore some order. This was a year after Ariel Henry, Haiti's prime minister, asked the UN for a military intervention to help his outgun and unmanned government restore some sense of security in Haiti. So how powerful are gangs in Haiti? According to the New York Times, 80% of Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital, and its surrounding area are controlled by gangs. But how much control are we talking about? In this episode, you'll hear my guest, Dr. Robert Faton, talk about barbecue, a gang leader who had blocked fuel and food from reaching the country that is devastated by cholera, and a gang leader that in 2022, the UN approved sanctions against. As Dr. Faton tells it, barbecue even prevented Prime Minister Henri from visiting the tomb of the assassinated president, Jovenel Moïse but then Barbecue himself visited the tomb for all the public to see. Could you imagine that in our country, that one day gangs would be so powerful that they could block the U.S. president from, for example, visiting Arlington Cemetery? It may seem silly to compare Haiti with the United States of America, right? Perhaps not so much. Like us Americans, Haitians do have a sense of exceptionalism. That's similar to ours, the founding of their nation, their country, was exceptional. In 2021, shortly after President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated, Dr. Faton was a guest in my program, during which we discuss his recently published book titled The Guise of Exceptionalism, Unmasking the National Narratives of Haiti and the United States. In that episode, Dr. Faton described the amazing story of how Haiti, in 1804, became the first black nation to gain independence from white empires, and how foreign powers kept on interfering in Haiti. For example, the French demanded indemnities from Haiti that lasted for decades and crippled its economy. And the U.S. invaded and occupied Haiti for more than a decade. I've dropped a link to that conversation in the detailed caption. In this episode, Dr. Faton continues Haiti's story. He tells us that while independent, Haiti essentially remained dependent. 
He explains why democracy never took hold in Haiti and tells the story of how, at least for a short while, everyone was excited in Haiti about promises of change, changes that could at last establish order and true, true democracy in Haiti. He talks of an exciting time in Haiti in which people, ordinary people, surrounded the presidential palace and prevented the military from removing the popular president, Aristide. Back in 2002, Dr. Fatton wrote a book titled Haiti's Predatory Republic, The Unending Transition to Democracy. I emphasize here, to democracy. In this episode, I ask him, if he were to write that book again, would the title be Transition Away from Democracy? And since Dr. Fatton is also a scholar of nations in Africa, I ask him to draw comparisons between them and Haiti about the development of democracy. Comparing countries is never easy and seldom wise. Nevertheless, Dr. Fatan superbly shares some insightful parallels here. In this episode, Dr. Fatan also talks about Haiti's light-skinned elite and Haiti's 27 different ways of qualifying blackness. Here, he tells us about corruption and why Haiti is a zero-sum society. As for foreign intervention, well, we'll talk about the Clintons, Hillary and Bill Clinton, and we'll talk about an election that lasted a year. Dr. Fatone is a Julia A. Cooper Professor of Government and Foreign Affairs in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia. He's also a former chair of that department, as well as a former associate dean of the graduate school there. In 2011, Dr. Fatone received the Award for Excellence of the Haitian Studies Association for his commitment and contribution to the emerging field of Haitian studies for close to a quarter of a century. To learn more about Dr. Fatan, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Fatan and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Fatan, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Um, after the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moïse, in July 2021, we heard and read a lot more about Haiti than before. And by we, I say, I mean we Americans. And one subject that is frequently reported on is the gangs in Haiti. But I'm not even sure if the term gangs is the correct word here because of the scale of their operation and their impact in Haiti. So um, let's talk about them. Who are these gangs? Where do they come from? Yeah, well, the gangs are not a new phenomenon in Haiti. Not new, okay. It's not new. The scope of their activities is much wider now, clearly. But historically, uh, when Haiti was not centralized, I'm talking about uh, the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, uh, you had gangs. They were kind of arm, armed uh, uh, bands that were to a large degree dependent on politicians in the different provincial areas of Haiti. So they were, to some extent, the armed weapons of those politicians when they wanted to get power. But it wasn't, you know, as significant as we have now. 
the gangs in the modern form have really started to crystallize in the late 1990s and early 2000. And initially they were... Also way before the assassination. Oh yes, we've had gangs. They were not as powerful because they were tied to politicians, they were tied to the business community, they were tied to the government. uh, And to understand why the gangs crystallized at that time, one must remember that in 1994, when uh, President Aristide came back to the country, he abolished the army. And there was an attempt to create an effective police. And the police has never been effective. Now it's completely disintegrating. But it was very poorly uh, armed, very poorly trained. There was a lot of corruption. Uh, It wasn't as bad as it is now. But still, it was not an effective force. And given the instability in the political system, different factions of the political class started creating their own gangs. The business community started also creating its own gangs. And when you had the the confrontation between Aristide and the Lavalas movement and members of the old army and members of the uh, business elite, then all of those groups created their gangs. And they were dependent on the financial uh, support of those different factions. Now, what has happened lately is that the gangs have essentially autonomy in the sense that while they may still have connections to the different factions of uh, Haiti's political class and economic uh, class, they are nonetheless quite independent and it's very difficult to control them. And they, they are much better armed. Actually, many people would argue that they have better weapons than the police itself. Uh, there is a massive traffic of uh, uh, guns and things of that sort uh, entering Haiti. And in addition to that, the gangs have also been tied to the drug business. So the, the drug business, the now pervasive uh, pattern of uh, kidnappings, etc., is nurturing financially those gangs. And uh, it is estimated, actually, the crisis group had an analysis about a year or two years ago. And at the time, there were about 200 gangs, according to them. But uh, in 200 gangs? 200 gangs, yeah. Oh, wow. Not all of them are significant, but okay. that was the estimate. What has happened lately, though, is that in uh, uh, about two years ago, three years ago, uh, in, in 2020, uh, the gangs federated. So many gangs which were fighting among themselves decided to create an alliance. And you have an alliance of the so-called G9, which is also known as uh, famille et allié, which is a Creole word to mean the family and its allies. And uh, that is probably the best known group because it's led by a former member of the police, a fellow by the name of Cherizier, Jimmy Cherizier. A gang is led by a former member of the police? Yeah. Oh, boy. And and he's known as Barbecue uh, because his (laughs) mother used to sell on the streets. Oh, boy. So, but 
So, and actually, there are several members of the police who have been uh, uh, implicated in the gangs. Uh, and th- this tells you the level of corruption that there is in the police. But Cherizier is one of the best known uh, ga- gang leaders in Haiti. And you have another major group, which is called J. Papla, which means the People's Group. Uh, and that one is headed by a fellow by the name of uh, Gabriel Jean-Pierre. Those are the two main groups. And uh, the, the coalition has attempted to lessen the violence between the gangs. But in recent uh, weeks, uh, the violence has increased significantly. Uh, I mean, last weekend, there was something like... Uh, 30 people killed, and not very far from the American embassy, which is actually on the road to the uh, airport in Beau-Prince. So violence is really pervasive, and it is estimated that something like 60 to 80 percent of Beau-Prince is now under the control of one gang or another. Wow. So, So the government has basically lost... Uh, its capacity uh, to control the environment within which it is functioning. And last week, uh, for the first time, the gangs were quite close to the private residence of the Prime Minister Ariel Henry. There were shots fired. So there is a feeling that public order, it's not a feeling, it's a reality now, that public order has completely disintegrated. And in the slums, the conditions are really dire. Uh, the struggle and the fights between different gangs uh, have led to a, a massive uh, population displacement, which is a real problem uh, for Pauvres. Uh, Something like 130 to 150,000 people essentially coming from this land have been displaced because they want to avoid being in the uh, in the gang warfare. So, so, are ha- so where are they going to if they have been displaced? This is the real problem. They are in the streets now. The government has no, uh, 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 doesn't really have the means to, to take care of that population. Uh, there are some NGOs which are trying to feed them, but it's extremely, uh, it's, a can- it's becoming a humanitarian catastrophe. And the UN has actually uh, mentioned that. And it's one of the reasons that there has been persistent calls on the part of the UN uh, for some form of external peacekeeping or intervention so that they could control the violence and control the proliferation of the gangs and that, that the government would retake control of order in Paul Press. And it's not just Paul Press now. Because uh, in the Valley of the Artibonite, which is the main area where Haitians produce uh, their foodstuff, well, that has been also uh, clearly affected by uh, uh, an increased level of violence on the part of the gangs. And uh, uh, last year, uh, there was a real problem uh, in terms of accessing oil in Paupress and elsewhere because the gangs controlled the road that led to uh, the the oil deposits in in Haiti, which meant that there was a crisis. Eventually, it was 
there was a negotiation between gangs and the government on some sectors of the business community. And, uh, but occasionally the gangs resurface when they need real money. And if you want to move your oil, you have to pay the gangs. They control oh boy. the area. They control the area going to the south. And now it's becoming increasingly clear that they are taking control of the areas, the, the main highways leading to the north. So if you want to go to Jeremy Lekai, it's extremely dangerous if you are leaving from Paul Prince. And um, of, yeah. Dr. Patton, if I may um, interrupt you and just peel back some of what you said mm -hmm. to better understand the background, the history. Um, and pardon me if some of these questions are naive. They just come from uh, the perspective of, of an American who doesn't yeah. know much about Haiti. Why did Aristide abolish the military? A country needs a military. Well, the, uh, you, you have to put yourself in the context of the mid-1990s. Uh -huh. You remember Aristide was overthrown by the military. Yes, and yes. Now that the military were to a large degree a danger to Haitian society. And the military in Haiti have had a very nasty history of repressing the population. And in addition to that, when Aristide came back, there were all kinds of international uh, groups and countries saying, well, you don't really need an army, you just need a police. And they took the example of Costa Rica as the uh, critical uh, uh, example whereby uh, it's better to have a police and not a, a huge military. And in fact, Aristide, when he abolished the military, uh, and you have to uh, remind yourself that Haiti is still a very macho kind of society, he painted the what what were the military words, the caserne de Salines. Uh, he painted the he painted the whole thing pink, and he put the ministry for a macho nation. He yeah, painted it pink. He, he I see. He painted it pink, and he put the ministry of. Uh, uh, the, uh, of women's condition in the former uh, <laughs> military spot. That's almost so, like an insult to macho military men. That's exactly that, and it was intended to, to be so. But the problem is that uh, very quickly, uh, you know, people resist who are resisting Aristide and people who are supporting Aristide and members of the business community started paying uh, very poor people to form gangs. It was it was a micro-phenomenon, but it started... Wait, they did that to protect their own communities? their own interests, etc. Yeah. So what about the police? Earlier you said police didn't, yeah, they, wasn't able to become effective. Why is that? Well, a lot of money has been spent on the police in the yeah. and, and from... It, during the uh, the MINUSTA uh, uh, period, MINUSTA was the United Nations peacekeeping forces, which were in Haiti from 2004 to 2017, and they were supposed to create a police, an effective police. At one point, it looked like it was going to work, but then things started to fall apart, in particular after uh, the earthquake of 2010. Uh, so it was, and the police has been also besieged by internal uh, fights and by uh, the politicization of the police. Each government wants to put someone uh, which is supporting, essentially, the, 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 the current government. So it has lost its, it lost its independence. And in addition, there, there was a crisis in the police. People were not paid very well. 
So the, with their weapons, they started allying themselves with some of the gangs. And as I've said, uh, uh, Jimmy uh, Chorizier Barbecue is what is the paradigmatic uh, figure of that. He's become the best known gang leader in Haiti. And he presents himself not just as a gang leader. Actually, he would refuse to accept uh, that appellation. He sees himself as someone fighting for the people in the slums. He has a vision of himself as kind of a Robin Hood. Uh, Although in reality, reality, this is very different uh, because the people who have suffered most from these gangs are poor people in the slums. They've been displaced. And it's really one of the great tragedies. Let me ask this question as you talked about uh, Barbecue and his gang. Again, uh, I wonder whether or not even the word gang makes sense because they're so massive and their operation is such a huge scale. Um, as they as they take over a certain territory, don't the leaders of these gangs have some interest in creating instability within their own territory. They also, they're almost becoming like little mini governments, right? Yes, that's, that's the case. Actually, you can always look at it as a mafia phenomenon. You know, you take an area and, uh, and actually in the history of the creation of modern states, uh, a lot of military gangs, if you want to call them that way, started to control the areas, started to impose taxes, the violence subsided because they wanted legitimacy. Yeah. And, but the problem is that you have so many gangs and they are all fighting each other to control territory. So you can't really impose order in a more consensual way. You have to impose order with the gun. And I see why you have had that massive exodus of people, in particular from the very poor areas of of the capital and from the slums. Uh, you know, it's a significant number when you're talking about 150,000 people who have been internally displaced as a result of yeah. that. It's really significant. And hundreds of thousands were previously displaced in the 2010 earthquake, and then again some Absolutely. in the 2021 earthquake. Yeah, I mean, yeah. um, are any of these gangs, Dr. Faton, sort of ideologically founded or racially or religiously founded? Or no, it's just for uh, power and profit? I would argue it's essentially for power and profit. Okay. But one has to also understand the socioeconomic conditions within which gangs are formed. Uh, the gangs are really composed of very young uh, people, and some of the members of the gangs are teenagers. They don't have a future in Haiti. There are no jobs. Uh, they don't have money. And that's, to some extent, an easy uh, way to make some money and to feel that you're a big a big man, as it were. When you're you a big a shot, company. yeah. Exactly. So there is that phenomenon. Uh, the conditions in the slums are such that there is no avenue uh, to to make it in any fundamental way. So when you have gangs, the gangs provide an exit from that dire condition. This is not to idealize the gangs, but it's it's to understand how they are created. 
the, the poverty that exists in those areas, the absence of a future, uh, is such that uh, uh, a lot of young people join the gangs. And also there is coercion. I mean, you are drafted and you'd better come. Yeah. So, so it's an element of coercion. It's an element of, uh, well, I'm going to have a gun now. I'm part of a movement. And some of the gangs, as I've said in particular, uh, uh, Barbecue has portrayed himself as a Robin some, Hood. Exactly. And you can see him on YouTubes. I mean, it, it's a really bizarre phenomenon. When you That's really him. brazen. He's not even shy uh, about absolutely. it. There's it's a certain level of legality and legitimacy yeah. to himself. Absolutely. I mean, there's a very interesting event that occurred, I think it was last year. Uh, the prime minister uh, was going to uh, to the tombstone of the founder of the country, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Yeah. He gives a speech and puts flowers. And Jimmy Cherizier, barbecue, decided that he was not going to go. So the, <laughs> the prime minister had to retreat. He couldn't give his speech and he couldn't put the flowers there. Oh, and, my gosh. And two hours afterwards, who shows up? Barbecue, barbecue shows up. With a gun, with about a few thousand of his followers, with flowers, and he gave a speech on YouTube. So it, This is it, how powerful he is. It is extremely powerful. And at one point, people were saying that he had been uh, uh, nurtured financially by the former president that there were connections between uh, Jovenel Moïse and, uh, and uh, Chorizier. And some people say that the business community has also had to pay him because if you want to get the oil, <laughs> you need to have access to the road. So there are all kinds of very opaque connections. Yeah. And it's very difficult to determine who's who and who's behind certain groups. And those alliances are ever-changing. Yeah. So we have 200 gangs, and one of them that you we talked about more yeah. under Mr. Yeah. Barbecue, G9, seems to be running just roughshod with the country. Yeah, although uh, there are new gangs that have appeared, and uh, you know, uh, especially in the last two or three weeks, that oh, have wow. taken other areas of Paul Pess. Uh, and it's not clear what is going to happen. As I've said, uh, some of the gangs have been very uh, cl close to the American embassy, which actually closed its uh, uh, its facilities uh, uh, in the last uh, week and a half because it was very dangerous, and most of the non-essential personnel of the American embassy uh, has left the country. So, so we, we essentially have don't have an embassy in well, Haiti. An embassy but it's an embassy that is working half time essentially for especially for the few remaining Americans in Haiti. But so who given all this violence and gangs, you know, we talked about some of them, who are these vigilante groups? Who would have the guts to stand up to these? These are citizens, I imagine. Yes, and that is not a new either. This is a pattern that you have in Haiti when uh, you have uh, gangs taking over that people because they don't they don't have the protection from the police they take matters into their own hands are and these middle class people or what sort of essentially poor people now uh -huh. because the poor people are the ones who are suffering the most from that okay 
Uh, it's there, you know. Uh, not to say that, that rich people are not suffering from it either, because they are suffering from kidnappings and ransoms, things of that sort. But uh, that started to crystallize in last April. And it spread. It's called Boacale, which is a Creole word, which means essentially peel wood. And those are vigilante groups. And they took by surprise the gangs. And they were extremely violent. In other words, if you're a gang member and they took you, you would be dead and the police would not do anything. Something like 350 people have been killed. But how are these vigilante groups armed? All, all kinds of different weapons. I mean, they have baseball bats, they have rocks. I mean, they swarm, you know, a group and they just, uh, I mean, you, there are videos actually of how they do it. And it, it started very spontaneously, but now it has taken more of a more organized way. In other words, neighborhoods have kind of groups. Uh, the danger with that movement is that it may get out of hand too. And that they may turn settle. into a gang themselves, yeah, or they may also settle scores with people who have nothing to do with the gangs. Uh, ah, the other danger, and this is particularly uh, a salient in the uh, in what has transpired in the last two weeks, is that the gangs have uh, regrouped and now they are attacking the vigilante. And this oh, is boy. so, this is where it gets is getting very nasty. Because the gangs are better armed, clearly, and uh, they are threatening anyone who's part of those uh, vigilante group or what the, in Haiti some people people see it as popular justice. Uh, and this again is, is not completely new. When uh, Duvalier fell in 1986, the Tonton Macout, which were the paramilitary group, uh, were attacked by. Uh, popular justice. If if you're a member of the Makut, you would be in really serious danger. And some people were, uh, some of the Makuts were killed in the streets, burned, etc. So this is not something that is new. It's something that you can understand given the the ugliness of the violence in the slums and in the poor areas whereby people have no protection whatsoever. So Ultimately, they decide to take justice into their own hands. Have any of these uh, vigilante groups ever been able to form some sort of movements that gives rise to a legitimate government? I think not I know the answer really, to that. Not but, really, but but you have studies of vigilant, previous vigilante groups which were well organized in terms of neighborhoods and they had people who were in charge of the uh, uh, of those groups, and if they knew that there was uh, 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 a gang in the area, they would mobilize to, to attack the gang. Yeah. Uh, so, but the problem is that they are not as well armed, as I've said. It, it's kind of yeah. uh, there is an unbalanced asymmetry of power there. Yeah. So um, would you, as as you were describing all of this uh, in the in the closing question of this segment? I'm wondering what you would call this. This is not a civil war. It's not two, three groups. It's sort of so many different things are happening. Yeah. I is think it, it's a disintegration of public order. Okay. In a very, very poor society, 
And uh, I, at least in the case of Haiti, I think that really uh, generates morbid symptoms. In other words, kind of a oh. war of all against all without organized uh, sides, as it were. And especially when you have a government that is completely illegitimate in the eyes of most of Haitians and has no capacity to impose order and no capacity to offer a future to the country. So, so you have a void of public authority, a void of legitimacy on the part of the uh, political figures. So that leads to that kind of uh, decomposition of society. And it's really a political, economic, moral, as uh, I would argue, decomposition of society. We'll be back after a short break to talk about foreign intervention in Haiti. We'll be right back. In 2021, an earthquake rocked Haiti, just months after the chaos caused by the assassination of its president, Jovenel Moïse. NGOs rushed to action in Haiti. NGOs have been in Haiti for a long time, particularly since Haiti's devastating 2010 earthquake which also recruited the help of Bill Clinton, George Clooney, and Sean Penn. But the impact of NGOs in Haiti hasn't always been positive. In Season 1, Episode 32, Dr. Mark Scholler explained the negative impacts of NGOs in Haiti, particularly on Haitian women, whom he described in his documentary, Potomitam, Haitian Women, Pillars of the Global Economy. Dr. Scholler is a professor of anthropology and nonprofit and NGO studies, is the author of the book titled Humanitarian Aftershocks in Haiti. I've provided a link to my conversation with him in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Faton. Uh, Dr. Faton, before we went on our break, I said that in this segment, we'll talk about foreign intervention in Haiti. But I think to start the segment, um, I need to better understand the difference between the following terms, uh, intervention, interference, and invasion. Is it just a matter of perspective? To some extent, it's a matter of perspective, but it's a matter also of the scope of the effects of an intervention or interference or an invasion. I mean, if you look at Haiti in particular, you could argue that a clear case of an invasion was when the United States occupied the country from 1915 to 1934. That was a military takeover on the part of the United States. In other words, they sent the Marines and they took over. For It was a the, full invasion then. Full invasion. The government was at the mercy of the U.S. Uh, the Marines were in Haiti. So that was the full invasion. Uh, now, there are all kinds of other forms of interferences, you could argue. They can be financial, they can be political, and what I mean by that, uh, you can have uh, the type of uh, political meddling in uh, more, more recently in the elections of Haiti, that the major powers, in particular the United States or the French, had favorites. And uh, that became very clear in the manipulation of the election. So that's kind of meddling. It's you mean not, our government here in the U.S. manipulated yeah. 
the lectures right. in Haiti? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, so, I mean, it's very clear. For it's a, there's a very uh, clear-cut case, and that's when uh, you had uh, in the mid, I mean, in 2015, the election of Martelly, and that was an election that was completely fraudulent. And, uh, and to put it bluntly, uh, Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, went to Haiti, and there were three candidates, and she essentially picked one, and that was uh, Martelly, which was really a very peculiar choice because the guy was had no capacity to be a real president. He was a very popular singer. He had a band. He's very well known in Haiti for his music. But politically, he had no business becoming president, but he was picked. And, no and we one, put him in power, essentially. Basically, I mean, you can't say they did. They were, they were kind of elections, but the elections were really... If you're in the third world, you know what elections can be. <laughs> yeah. Where <laughs> votes disappear. And it, the election lasted for more than a year because no one agreed on who was going to be president. So oh, there were contestations... Boy. There was the electoral council in Haiti had picked two two candidates, uh, 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 and Martini was not part of the top two. So in other words, he was out of contention. And then suddenly, uh, you know, with pressure from the international community, uh, well, Martini became number two, and the number two disappeared. <laughs> so you, I mean, those are the this is meddling on a forceful basis. So this is what you were, for example, Ms. Secretary Hillary Clinton going to Haiti is an example of interference. So what of is... Inter- yeah, yeah. What, so what is, mean, yeah, other forms of meddling. I mean, uh, for instance, uh, uh, when you, you have a government which wants to have a particular economic program and the World Bank or the IMF says, no, you can't do that. You have to follow our, our policies. And that, to some extent, was something that happened when Aristide returned uh, uh, to power in 94. There was a quid pro quo because Aristide wanted to have some kind of social democratic form of uh, economic policies. But in order to return, he had to sign papers uh, with the IMF and the World Bank to move com- in a completely different direction than the one he had intended to do. And Aristide actually lied about it. He said, I never, I never committed to that, but the evidence is overwhelming because the papers are signed. Yeah. You can see that. But he never really wanted to acknowledge that because for, from his perspective, that would be a surrender. Uh, Preval was one guy who was, he was the president uh, yeah, from 2006 to 2010. He maneuvered very nicely between the, the demands of the United States, the IMF, the World Bank, and he had very good relations with Cuba and Venezuela. He, he was very good at it. But the whole thing collapsed with the uh, the earthquake. and uh, In 2010. In 2010. So that the attempt to be, you know, balancing one against the other uh, without alienating anyone, and he was quite good at it, uh, that collapsed. He was able to to modulate the level of interference from different Absolutely. factions. For instance, yeah. there, there, there was something like, I think there were about 2,000 Cuban doctors in Haiti. Uh, 
oil was subsidized by Venezuela, and that was under Chavez, which was enemy of the United States. Yeah, yeah. He had very good relations with the U.S. <laughs> he negotiated with the French very nicely. He had good relations with the IMF and the World Bank. He had decent relations with the business community. So he was he was very good at he was a survivalist, as it were, in yeah. a very complicated scene. But the earthquake was uh, the, the event that literally uh, led to the collapse of, of that kind of experiment. And Preval himself was deeply affected by uh, by the earthquake. He almost died in it by accident that he didn't die because he he was supposed to be at the National Palace, which collapsed. Yeah. And he went to his house and he was supposed to die in the house too, but he had this grandkid outside and he went outside and the house collapsed. And he never really fully recovered. I mean, this was a shocking event. Emotionally recovered. Yeah, for, for the, everyone in Haiti. Yeah. The National Palace, interestingly, is still not rebuilt, uh, yeah. which sort of and speaks about what's it, happening yeah. in Haiti. Uh, so we talked about in an example of invasion, yeah. the U.S. in the 1920s up to 1934. We talked about in examples of interference in the election financially through yeah. subsidies and what have you. So what is an intervention after all this? Well, if you put it in modern terms, that would be to some extent what Haiti has had since the return of Aristide to power in '94. It wasn't systematic, but the UN uh, came to Haiti at that period and they were trying to generate uh, an effective police. And in 2004, Aristide was forced to leave power. And then you had first uh, the U.S. and the French who intervened. I mean, they sent about about 5,000 troops. And eventually the U.N. replaced the French and the American troops. And you had something like 13,000 peacekeeping forces from Brazil, Chile, and other countries. Uh, that was an intervention that was led by the UN and uh, the government that was installed at the end of, uh, once Aristide was compelled to exit, uh, that government was to a large degree creation of the international community. Uh, and it demanded the UN uh, intervention. And the UN came. Uh, but at the time, there was no, probably no other alternative given the conditions in Haiti, because uh, the country had started to descend into almost a civil war. And to stop it, then you had first the Americans and the French came to, the, uh, to stop that. Uh, and eventually, Minusta came. They reestablished a modicum of order. And you had already had some gangs in the in the slums, and Minister uh, managed to, as I've said, establish some order. But the problems never were never resolved. Once Minister left, things fell apart, and it was not just the exit of Minister; it was also the consequences of the earthquake, the incapacity of the Haitian uh, political class to get behind some sort of government of national unity and then the 
proliferation of very corrupt governments and very incompetent governments that uh, really uh, have led to the acute crisis that we face now. And in my view, at least least in my lifetime, I think it's the most devastating crisis that Haiti uh, has confronted. And Haiti has confronted many crises, but Um, I think, yeah. Who is asking for intervention in Haiti now? What groups in society? Is it the government itself? The government has formally asked for an intervention. From the UN or from a specific... The UN or from whatever. They want an international force. And that's more than a year ago. Uh, And they asked for the intervention uh, because they've clearly realized that they cannot deal with the gangs. Yeah. This is, this is an indication of their powerlessness. Uh, now, the problem is that even if many Haitians would support some form of intervention, the people who oppose Ariel Henry, the, cur- the current prime minister, argue that if there is an intervention, what is going to happen is that Ariel Henry is going to be consolidated and they will be pushed aside. So they do not want an intervention. Oh, so there's not even an accord amongst Haitians about whether or not... not. No, 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 no. It's the government. I mean, there's a so-called Montana group, which is probably the largest uh, group composed of civil society organizations, political parties, unions, etc., that has been excluded from power, and they do not want Ariel Henry as prime minister. Negotiations have been going on for more than a year and they've led to nothing. Uh, so there is still that confrontation. And the Montana group uh, argues that they don't want a foreign intervention at the moment, or at least if there is going to be a, a, a foreign intervention, there needs to be a legitimate government of national unity that would make the intervention uh, plausible and acceptable to all Haitians. Now, the situation um, is so dire that it may well be that the majority of Haitians would want an intervention, even if they don't say that uh, publicly, because yeah, there's a very strong sense of nationalism. And clearly, if you appeal uh, the, to the international community to resolve your own problems, it's an indication that you are not a functioning society. So there is that kind of feeling that an intervention is really not necessarily the best thing. And the other element, which is very important too, is that previous interventions have not resolved yeah. fundamental problems of Haiti. I mean, MINUSTA, as I've said, established a modicum of order, but afterwards uh, we see the, the, the situation now. In other words, and they spent something like $7 billion in Haiti to create supposedly an effective police an effective electoral uh, seven system. billion. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, thirteen thousand. Uh, you know, foreign troops in Haiti, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of bureaucrats from the UN. So that that is very costly. So in other words, uh, there is a feeling among many Haitians that the international intervention is not going to resolve our fundamental problems. So it may be that, given the security situation that it would be something that that could be arranged if you had a legitimate government. And once order has been established, Haitians would take 
mothers into their own hands. And the Montana group has called for what they called une transition de rupture. In other words, a political transition that would cut uh, the previous political system, judicial system away and reestablish something completely new. And they've called for at least a two-year transition uh, before you have any elections. That's such a so, fundamental change. Yeah, well, the, the, the argument is that AD cannot function with, well, there's no institution now in Haiti. Yeah. There's not a single elected official. Parliament doesn't exist. Uh, the Senate doesn't exist. The judicial system has, for all practical purposes, completely collapsed. There is no electoral council. Uh, so there is no standing institution. Wow. The constitution has been completely violated because you have no one in charge who's been elected or ratified by a parliament. So those are, to a large degree, self-appointed leaders. And they are self-appointed in the sense that they've been put there by uh, and supported by the international community. I mean, the case of Ariel Henry is very interesting because when Jovenel Moïse was assassinated, uh, the then prime minister was a fellow by the name of Claude Joseph, but he was going to be replaced by Ariel Henry. The problem with Ariel Henry is that there was no parliament to ratify his ascendancy. Oh my God. Prime minister. And for, for the first week, the international community recognized Claude Joseph as the prime minister. And suddenly, and th this is really amazing when you think about it, yeah. there was a tweet, I'm talking a tweet by the representative of the UN saying that uh, Ariel Henry should become the legitimate prime minister of Haiti. A and simple tweet? It's a tweet on Twitter. Unleash the whole thing. There was no other organization that could ratify <laughs> Ariel Henry. Ariel Henry was put there by the international community and Claude Joseph had to exit. Oh, boy. Uh, talk about so interference the, in the so nation. That is a real interference by the international yeah. community. And this is not just the United States. Those, this is the UN, Canada, US, French, uh, Chileans. I mean, they decided that Ariel Henry was better for whatever reason. And to be fair, Ariel Henry was known to be a very good doctor. He's, he's one of the few neurosurgeons in Haiti, and he's a very good one. Uh, and the assumption was that, well, he has qualifications. I don't know if he had political qualifications, but he was perceived as some sort of uh, decent human being. And for all I know, he may be very decent, but he's, he's out of his league in terms of the political situation. So they thought that, hey, he's an MD, he's a good doctor, he has some skills, some organizational skills, you know, education, maybe he can... I, I never understood how that was done. Convey that over to politics. I mean, you, know, you have a tweet from the UN saying, well, he's the new prime minister, he should be the new prime minister, and boom, here he is. Oh, boy. We'll be back after a short break to talk about democracy in Haiti. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on U.S. politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, 
and also series on many other countries like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Faton, why didn't democracy take hold in Haiti in the 20th century? And I appreciate that one can ask that about many different countries, but you and I are speaking about Haiti now. Well, this is a complicated issue. I mean, first, we, we would need to define what we mean by democracy. If you oh. simply elections, then you had periods where you had elections. But uh, another issue is the quality of those elections. And in Haiti, you could argue that there was only, in the modern period, only one really free and fair election, and that was the first election of Aristide in 1990. Uh, All of the other elections were clouded by fraud, clouded by disputes over who won and who lost. And and you have different levels in the electoral process. You have presidential elections, you have then the legislative elections, the municipal elections. And in terms of presidential elections, as I've said, the only genuinely free election was the one that led to Aristide's first presidency. Now, Aristide was re-elected, Pival was elected twice, and those probably reflected the will of the population. But the parliamentary elections were besieged by problems and by alleged uh, fraudulent counting, etc., etc. Dr. Faton, what if we define democracy differently? And I'm inspired by what you said in the prior segment. You talked about, as, as we were closing the last segment, you talked about essentially lack of strong institutions in in Haiti. I don't even know if the church is any longer a relevant institution in society. Maybe one definition of democracy is a strong court system, a strong parliament, a strong, name it, senate, a strong police or military or universities. Why didn't they take hold in the 20th century in Haiti? Or did well, they take hold? Had, Go ahead. Yeah, you, had some, you, had, you had some institutions. That doesn't mean that you had democracy. I mean, there were universities, you had medical schools, etc. The church was very powerful. But in terms of uh, legitimate institutions that reflected some sort of will of the majority, that has been absent. Uh, The country has been... uh, Throughout the 20th century? Mostly, yeah. Mostly, okay. Uh, As I've said, the the time... Haiti is a zero-sum society. Zero-sum society, okay. Which makes consensual politics extremely difficult to establish. In other words, what I mean by zero-sum society is that you have a very small elite that controls the economy. And that elite has tended to be light-skinned. The political system has tended to be, in for the last 70 years or so, at least the, since the advent of Duvalier, in the hands of what you might call the black bourgeoisie. And there was a compromise 
between those two. One has the political power, the other has the economic power. And eventually they fused and the uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, uh, the son of François Duvalier, the first president of the Duvalier dictatorship. He, he Are these uh, Papa Doc? Uh, Papa Doc and, and Baby Doc, yeah. Baby Doc, Papa, okay. You know what? You know, quote unquote, he was elected in 1957 mm-hmm. and he became a life president in 1964. He picked his son to succeed him. And when he died in 1971, Jean-Claude Duvalier became president for life. And uh, there is an event that really consolidated the alliance between what you might call the black elite. Those are very, it's, so, it's not as clear cut as I'm putting it there. Yeah. But basically, it reflects some sort of the understanding in the imaginary of the Haitian uh, uh, mind, political mind. Jean Claude Duvalier married into a, 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 a light skinned family. And that kind of sealed that alliance between people at the very top of the economy and people who had been associated with the Duvalier political system. When you say light-skinned family, are these immigrants? Uh, I Some don't know of them I'm... are immigrants, you know, in particular from the Middle East, and they, there is a small oh. segment. And then you have people like me who are descendants of, you know, slaves and former uh, colonial uh, 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 people, the French or the Germans uh, uh, or the Americans. So there is a mixture. It's, it's a very, I mean, Haiti, the question of, of color. Uh, uh, is a very interesting question. We have, I mean, uh, an anthropologist uh, has studied the matter and said there's something like 27 different ways of qualifying blackness. Oh, wow. From one spectrum to the other, you know, from very dark to very light skin, from, you know, a flat nose like I have, or, you know, kind of a, a Caucasian nose, if you wish. So there are all kinds of ways. Your hair, is the hair straight, is not straight? So you're considered light-skinned in uh, Haiti. Yeah, I would but be considered a That's why we call them in Haiti. I'm sorry, could you repeat that, please? I would be considered a mulato. Oh, I see, I see. That's, what, that's how we call uh, uh, people of my... But, I mean, if you're in my immediate family... <laughs> yeah, people are very dark. <laughs> oh, I see. So, so because you don't know, my mother was dark. My father was a mulatto. So when you mix that, you can get something like me, or you can get someone who's very black. My grandfather from my mother's side, I mean, he was as dark as a Senegalese person. Oh, wow. Um, so, so when we talk about a small elite that was light-skinned, and you said it's a zero-sum society yeah let's get back to that yeah is that is when you say zero sum is is it because of the size of the elite group that it's just a small click it's a small click and people know each other the alliances and not only that but in terms of the uh, welfare of the population the economy you know it's not a wealthy country even if you were to redistribute everything people would be very poor so, but there is a group which does very well, uh, uh, you know, and they want to keep that wealth and they don't want to share it. And I see. in the political arena, people who have political power don't want to share it because politics is a business. 
you know, you run for office when you have elections in order to use your office uh, uh, for private gains, corruption. Oh, boy. So, and this is one of the reasons once you get elected in the modern period, in the last 30 or 40 years, you do not want to give back that shit because you are not that wealthy when you became a senator or a congressman. But you have used that position, and it's virtually everyone. Uh, when you've used that position in order to enrich yourself and your family and, you know, your extended claw, as it were. So this is what I mean by zero sum. You're in power. You are going to try to keep it by any means. Because if you lose that power in the political sense, you're out. And this is one of the tragedies of an economy like Haiti. Uh, the, the, the avenues to making it, as it were, are virtually non-existent in the private sector, except if you are part of the elite, of that small economic elite. As, so, as you explain all of this, I'm wondering, is there, is there any sort of creed, belief in serving the country? Well, we had a moment when that happened. And, and, and I think, you know, after the fall of Jean-Claude Duvalier, there was a moment of uh, real excitement, thinking that finally, you know, the dictators are gone. We are going to establish a new society. We are going to establish the rule of law. I mean, there was a, a, the constitution that was written in 2000, uh, I mean, in 1987 is a beautiful constitution. If only people respected it. I mean, it, 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 it everything that you want in a decent society, in a functioning society, in a society where there is redistribution of power, check and balances, access to healthcare, access to everything that you could imagine is in that constitution. The constitution, unfortunately, has been violated from the very beginning because we were supposed to have an election in 2000, I mean, in 1987, uh, and the military were in control at that time and they aborted the, the election. Uh, so there was another election immediately afterwards, and the military picked someone uh, to be president. And that fellow, a fellow by the name of Maniga, thought he was smarter than the, the military. He, he accepted to be put there, uh, think, thinking that he would essentially bypass the military. Get rid and of the military. started reforming, and then suddenly, uh, and that's very vivid in the minds of many Haitians, he basically remove all of the top officer corps. And nothing happened during the day, so he was at his house celebrating, we've managed to get out those bastards. <laughs> what happens when he's celebrating? Those very officers come with a few tanks around his house. They pick him up and they send him in exile. Oh, boy. So And then we had the election of, of Aristide after multiple coups within the coups in the military. And that was a good election. But what is also interesting is that Aristide was elected in 1990 and he was supposed to take power in 1991. There was an attempted coup that failed before he was... Uh, uh, you know, it, it failed, okay. Because people essentially block the coup. 
they when they word that the coup was in the making, particular people in the slums came around the National Palace and the military caserne, and they stopped the coup. That's that's and, amazing. That's a yeah, great and story. That, and and I, I see it was extremely popular at the time. I mean, he was genuinely seen as the guy who was going to change the country. And to some extent, there was that vision of a different society. But once Aristide became president in February of uh, 19, 1991, he was overthrown seven months afterwards. And again, the military and the elite felt threatened, and they would have none of it. I see. I see. That was a moment that passed, uh, sort of a, yeah, kind of like was, a candle there in was the wind. kind of a euphoria in the country. I remember, especially after the fall of Jean-Claude Duvalier. I mean, most Haitians who were abroad were thinking, Maybe we should go back. I almost went back. And I said, oh, that is awesome. You know, I have a lot of friends who went back and they left. Some of them remain because there was a vision, well, maybe we can do something now. Uh, but very quickly, uh, you know, 1986, Duvalier departs. There's a beautiful constitution of 1987. There's an election and it's aborted by the military in a bloodshed. So after that, People started thinking, eh, this is not necessarily the change that we may have envisioned. But then Aristide was elected, and the so-called Lavalas movement was an extremely popular movement. And there was a vision of changing things and changing them uh, drastically. But that failed too. So. In the minute we have left of this segment, let me ask you this. Um, in 2002, when Aristide was uh, president, uh, he had come back. Uh, mm -hmm. You published a book titled Haiti's Predatory Republic, The Unending Transition to Democracy. That's the title of your book. Yeah. If you were to write that book again, perhaps a second edition, would you pick the same thing, transition to, or would you say transition away from democracy after what's happened since 2002 yeah, well, to now? In 2002, and I was writing it in 2001, 2000, I had some degree of optimism that maybe we could navigate it very imperfectly, but that we could maybe establish some institutions. But I, by the time I finished the book, I realized that uh, this is not going to work. This is why I have the unending. Yeah, unending. Yeah. At that point, I couldn't see where it was going. And I felt that things were not going to move in a clear direction. Uh, now, it, what I know, what happened, it's very clear that it's not just an ending, is that the transition has been... Uh, aborted. Failure. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's aborted. Uh, although we do have certain things that still indicate that there is a possibility, uh, in spite of the gangs, in spite of the violence, in spite of the poverty, uh, Haitians, to a large degree, can say whatever they want to say, which is a very interesting phenomenon. It's almost license. Oh, you're talking about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Oh. You know? And that's very interesting. There are multiple radio stations in Haiti, and this is how you listen to the news, etc. And there is very little control over what is being said 
how about the gangs? Don't the gangs control the radio? You can't say bad things well, about it. So, some radios are under the control of the gangs, or the YouTube, you've seen the gangs. But there are radios which are, I mean, quite clearly opposed to the gangs, call them bandits, violent. So oh. the prime minister is treated on the radio as an incompetent, an idiot, a corrupt. I mean, you, you hear that. The very fact that the Montana group, which is an opposition group, still exists is an indication that there is something still there that could be used to generate a, a, a better future. But it's a very complicated thing because those kinds of group or institutions are extremely weak. I mean, there are certain universities that are trying to do something. Uh, the church is still trying to negotiate. Uh, and actually, there was a very short truce among certain gangs that was engineered by the church. So there are certain institutions that are still in the background, but they are very weak and it's very very difficult for them to impose themselves. But the but, fact that they can express themselves, yeah. that's a huge deal. You can't do that in Russia. You can't do that in, I don't know, China, Iran, name it, you, many countries. The, the very existence of the Montana group is an indication clearly that not Everything has been completely suppressed. Hopefully, um, so, more so will come out be, of this. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Fatong as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Fatton, in addition to your extensive scholarship on Haiti, your homeland, you're also a scholar of Africa. <laughs> and I know what I'm about to ask is, is, is probably not wise to ask this question. Um, it's always difficult to compare countries, you know, so many different historical backgrounds and scenarios. But I wonder if you've discovered any parallel trends in development of democracy and stable society between Haiti and any African countries? Yeah, there are lots of parallels. They are not the same, obviously. But the phenomenon of what I call predatory democracy is something that you can find in Africa. In other words, you have elections, but the elections tend to be fraudulent. The people who are elected seek to uh, protect their power, to preserve it, to change the constitution so they can remain in power beyond what the constitution initially had said. Which you were talking about in the last segment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if you look at many African countries, even when they, are, they have elections, there are very few countries in Africa that have genuinely free elections. Uh, and those that have genuinely free elections, they are they are deeply contested, very much like in Haiti. I mean, if you look at uh, recent elections in Senegal, in Kenya, uh, the victors claim victory, but the losers claim that they were stolen, whether that's true or not. <laughs> but, and, and you have problems, you have protests, and, and eventually there is some sort of an agreement between the contending groups, but that's that's very real in sub-Saharan Africa. The other thing that is very real is continuous attempts to change the constitution so that you can 
prolonged your term almost eternally. (laughs) (laughs) You have two terms while you're in power. I say, okay, I'm such such a good leader that (laughs) I'm going to change the constitution so I have a third term. I'm going to give my life service to the country. Exactly. (laughs) And you've had many coups. I mean, very recently you you have had coups in Mali. You have had a recent coup in Niger. You had the coup in uh, uh, in uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, you know, if you look at Uganda, uh, Museveni is trying to prolong his 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 term indefinitely, and even his son seems to be the one who's going to be <laughs> the next in line. Gabon is the same. So you you name it, you have that kind of thing. The difference, I think, is that. In those countries, you also have ethnic conflicts that we don't really have in Haiti, which uh-huh. exacerbate uh, the problems to some extent. So in Haiti, you have just a, a limited amount of conflict between, as I've said, the light skin. And, but this is not as intense as the ethnic conflicts that you have had in many sub-Saharan African countries. Uh, so that's, to some extent, a difference. Uh, the other difference is that, uh, for good or ill, we are very close to the United States, which means that we are in that sphere of influence. So, uh, uh, whether Haitians... By we, you mean Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. And that generates different kinds of entanglements, although in West Africa, in French West Africa in particular, the French were very uh, significant. In, in yeah. yeah, yeah. But that is dissipating. If if I if I may add another difference that I observe as I was preparing for this conversation with you is that Haiti hasn't been an outright colony of any nation. I use that word colony in the formal sense since uh, you know you and I discussed this two years ago since 1804. Am yeah, I correct? Versus ma- yeah, many of these African countries in the sub-Saharan area, in the Sahel region or whatever, were colonies up to 1950s, 1960s. Is this difference in history a positive impact on um, Haiti or does it change any of our conversation here? I think Haitians are extremely proud of the fact that they've been independent since 80 On the other hand, Haiti has been totally dependent on the external world, whether we like it or not. But we haven't been really a colony in that sense. But if you look at certain events in the history of the country, for instance, the so-called indemnity that uh, the Haitian government consented to pay uh, to the French, so that the French <laughs> government in, eight, in 1825 would recognize Haiti, is an indication that we were independent, but we were besieged by the international community. Yeah. I mean, the very fact that Haiti was the first black independent country in a system that was a white supremacist system at the time meant that Haiti from the very beginning was a paria nation. Uh, so It threatened all the white empires. Yes, exactly. So that that is kind of a different mentality. But then we were occupied by the United States and uh, we were financially totally dependent on the external the external institutions and, and uh, powerful countries. I see. So there is, there is in the mind of Haitians that we are independent, we are free, we are the first. 
But on the other hand, there's a reality that is very constraining. I see. Um, given all this history, recent, past, and distant past, going back to 1804, at this point, do you consider Haiti a failed state? Failed state is a loaded term for me. Yeah, I don't even... Could you define yeah. that for us, please? When you read the literature, it's essentially the result of internal phenomena, the culture, the economy, etc., etc. And there is that. I mean, Haitians are quite uh, a factor in the fact that they've failed. But on the other hand, I think there is the external arena, which has exacerbated the conditions in Haiti. And what I mean by that, uh, and, and that clearly not everyone would agree with that, but the neoliberal model that has been imposed uh, on Haiti since the late 1970s, I think, has been an utter failure. It has led to the uh, really evisceration of the state. It has and that led, has been introduced and imposed by foreigners. I would argue not exclusively, because mm-hmm. the Haitians were the other part of the <laughs> equation, as it were. I see. But when, when, when you. Uh, decide that you should open your economy completely in a poor country like Haiti for agricultural goods, for any kind of goods, that means that your local productive capacity is going to be destroyed. And you have very clear examples of that. I mean, uh, the, the most celebrated one or the most infamous one is the one about rice. Uh, Haiti was self-sufficient in terms of rice production up till really the late 1980s. And then the IMF, USAID, decided that the best thing to do was to open up the economy completely to almost uh, abolish entirely any type of tariffs on rice importation. And what what happened is that rice production in Haiti collapsed. Because you bring cheaper rice from abroad. Yes, exactly. And and the thing which is also paradoxical is that the cheaper rice came initially from Arkansas, and the policies, were, <laughs> and you know who was behind that? Who? Oh, Bill Clinton. Clinton. <laughs> and actually, so this is a double whammy: one with Bill Clinton, later well, but with Hillary Clinton. And, and he and he apologized very publicly about this fact that he destroyed the rice system. In oh, he did. He did in front of the Senate. He, he said so. But nothing has been done about it. Oh uh, boy! So you and the argument was that you're going to get obviously cheaper rice, which is true. But once you get the cheaper rice, what happens is that your local agricultural sector is destroyed, and it then happens all the time, people yeah. who import the rice can increase the price. And you know, it's been almost now what uh, forty years. And what happened is that the taste has changed too. So people like the rice coming from the United States or from Vietnam. And both countries oh, subsidize boy. their rice production. In Haiti, we are not supposed to subsidize anything. Oh, my goodness. Um, and here are the big, powerful nations of the world, such as us and China and many others who have tariffs and they subsidize here. Haiti adhering. So and the other thing too is, and it's it's something that one can understand, but on the other hand, it's extremely 
uh, problematic is the growth of the NGO sector. And that is a real foreign uh, phenomenon. In other words, the IMF, the World Bank, USAID, the French, the Canadians have said the Haitian state is so corrupt that we are not going to give uh, money to the Haitian state. We are going to give it to NGOs. So you have a proliferation of NGOs in Haiti. And that means that the state has been completely retrenched. And this is why you have no functioning state to a large degree. And you don't really uh, have a less corrupt society because what happens is that all of the bureaucrats who are in the state, they lose their job. What do they do? They work for the NGOs now. They work for the NGOs. Oh, boy. So to go back to my answer that whether or not Haiti is a failed state, and you can ask that ask that question from many about many other countries. One of the one of the distinctions that you're drawing, if 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 I get this correctly, is that it may not be a failed state per that definition because there's so much external pressure and impact. Goes back to our earlier conversation about intervention, interference, and invasion, right? Yeah, That's so an interesting dis- distinction, it, yeah. It, I mean, internal and external factors have really fused to create that situation. Uh, and the general assumption about failed states is that it is, to a large degree, a purely internal phenomenon. Now, as I've said, Haitians are quite responsible for their own problems, too. But there's a lot of external pressure there's on There's a lot of external intervention. Yeah. Yeah. that has exacerbated uh, the, the conditions. And many of the leaders who became leaders of Haiti were to a large degree tied to foreign uh, powers. Interesting. Not necessarily the choice of nations. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Haiti, after everything we've talked about, what would it be? Just one point. It's difficult to say because, uh, you know, uh, bottom line is that I'm Haitian <laughs> and I've portrayed a very, uh, a picture that that is a picture of catastrophe, which is yeah. partly true. But on the other hand, what is also amazing is that in that catastrophe, people continue to manage to survive. Now, this is not something that is amazing. It's amazing, but it's not necessarily something that one should celebrate because instead of doing that, we should come together and try to have a better solution. Yeah. This is my ultimate hope that uh, the crisis is so acute now that people will be compelled to have an agreement. But I've been saying that since the earthquake because I thought <laughs> the earthquake was such a calamity and not of our own making, as it were. Although the disaster that would bring everyone together. Yeah, and there was a moment where I said, "This is it," because that's the only way to escape to that catastrophe. It's nobody's and fault, and everyone could yeah. coalesce yeah. over. Yeah. And we almost did it, but unfortunately, Preval's term was over, and as I've said, he was so disturbed by the earthquake that he he didn't manage to have that moment, which would have sealed him as one of the great leaders of Haiti. And then we had elections that were quite bad, and the elections should never have taken place in the conditions uh, uh, in, in the aftermath of the earthquake, because there was no 
logistical capacity to have good elections. And this is one of the problems too. And this is something that I would like to emphasize. The idea that you should have elections immediately in the country, even if there is a modicum of order, I think would be a disastrous decision. I think oh. it needs to be a transition. We need to have a good electoral uh, uh, establishment stand. foundation. Yeah, we, we need the logistical support to have those elections. We need an electoral council. I mean, the, the electoral council well, was supposed to have been a permanent electoral council since 1987. We have never had a permanent electoral council. Every election has brought a new council, which is a source of infighting between the different political groups. And the electoral councils have clearly move elections in one direction uh, without <laughs> having good elections. Yeah, they've so, had their own biases. So if we have to have elections, they'd better be good and legitimate. And at the moment, we can't have that. We don't yeah. even know what's the, uh, what's the total population in Haiti. Right? Yeah, um, because as, as, as you explained, uh, the mechanical act of going through an election in and of itself doesn't mean that this is a democratic nation. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Dr. Faton, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Faton. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting. It's always an interesting conversation. For sure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>